0: Amen. So this is Wednesday. It is June 12th, 2013. And after preaching on the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus, uh, we had two claims from automobile accidents. We broke two smartphones that we have two years left to pay for. We broke our wireless mic and an endless. I mean, that was just since Sunday evening. And you know what I had to say to the heavens? Bring it on. I can take that and a whole lot more because the church of the living God is an anvil that wears out hammers. You could beat me into a greasy little spot on the ground, and that greasy little spot is going to say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Let's have a little Holy Ghost defiance tonight. Somebody say, I'm blessed. (laughs) This world can try to conform me to its image, but I say, No, in the name of Jesus, the living Christ, I will fight back. Amen. Amen. Come on, I'm blessed. Listen, if we knew what real blessings were, real blessing is to not have to sin, to have power over it. Real blessing is to know that you go to bed confident that the living God is with you and not against you. Turn with me to the book of Jude. We've been studying this on uh, Sunday evenings, no, Monday evenings rather. We're approaching the book of Revelation. And much of what you'll hear tonight come from my thoughts about that. In the first chapter of Jude, say there when you were there. Third verse. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that once for all was entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. There are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. I would like to tell you that the problems the church has are not on the outside pressing upon us. The problem that the church has is in what we have accepted among us. We failed often to realize that the most dangerous thing to the church of the living God is for us to accept something that is impure and call it pure. We live in an age where it's taboo to question someone's salvation because if they say they were saved, then who are you to question it? I say, I am a child of the living God with His Spirit in me. And if you cannot bear the questioning, then you certainly will not bear the judgment of God, friends. It's not my intention tonight to be judgmental, to be ugly, to be anything else. It's simply to contend for the faith. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Let us get to the sixth chapter. If you beat me there, yell there. Oh, now that wasn't yelling there. Somebody yell there. Come on now. What's wrong? Did somebody get your tongue? The confessions of our mouths are falling away. What's going on, Matthew? Are you excited about Jesus tonight? Amen. Come on now. Here comes Ephesians 6, starting in the 10th verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Did you hear that? Not against flesh and blood. But who is it against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are warned by the Apostle Paul that we are in a life and death struggle, but it is not with the other human beings that you see. It is with things that go often unseen. And yet, the church has an overly simplistic view of the heavens. We tend to say that there's God, there's angels, and there's the devil. Now if this creation is a reflection at all of that creation, if what God built upon the earth in the tabernacle of Moses was representative of something that was in the heavens, then you need to know something. If we have kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species, if we have thousands upon thousands of diversities of creations here, do you really think that in the heavens we have three things? What about Melchizedek? What about cherubim? What about seraphim? What about the... Heavenly priesthood. What about the living creatures? What about the elders? What about those things with eyes on them that are searching to and fro? What about so many things in the heavenlies? And these are just mentioned in a handful of Scriptures. How many have gone unmentioned? Do you really think that what we see with our eye is more bright, more vivid, more beautiful and intricate than what God sees with His eyes every day? I think not, friends. I bet that our words pale to be able to describe what men have seen in the heavens. By the way, what makes gold valuable? That it's rare, right? If you pave your streets with it, how valuable is it? And yet, we came to a place where we're describing golden streets and gates that are taller than this building is, made of pearl. And this is because men did not have the right words to describe. There was nothing available to describe the beauty of what they saw. In the heavenly realms, friends, there is a battle. Our message tonight is called, Past, Present, and Future, War in the Heavenly Realms. If you want to take notes, our message this evening is going to start in Job 15, 15. Here comes that first half of that verse. It says, If God places no trust in His holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in His eyes, Is that a surprise to some of you? The heavens are not pure in God's eyes? How about this one from Job 4.18? If God places no trust in His servants, if He charges His angels with error. Now, I know that it's classic Christian theology, although it's completely unfounded in the Word. These stories that we've told our children that the devil was an angel that fell and Maybe he was an archangel, maybe he was a worship leader, maybe blah, blah, blah. I don't know why the worship leaders get the bad rap, Matthew. I mean, we could make him from California if we wanted to just to do it, but it wouldn't make it right. What we do see in the Scripture is that Satan appeared with the angels. We see phrases that indicate differences, like neither angels nor demons. We see the word angel and we see the word fallen angel, but look at this if He charges His angels with error. This heavenly realm has entities in it that are not pure. They are not on your side. They are not on God's side. When we pray, it is not an email that simply goes to God and He blinks an eyelash and it's answered. It's more like battle lines. No different than any field of warfare that there has ever been. Messengers are sent and they are resisted. Enemy lines clash. Jesus said kingdom would clash against kingdom and nation against nation. It seems as if one was physical and one was spiritual. In the 10th chapter of Daniel that we won't go to, Daniel sets on his knees to pray. And an angel appears and he says, From the first day you began praying, which was 21 days earlier, your words were heard. But the prince of Greece stood against me. And the prince of Persia will come after that. And Michael, the chief prince who watches over your people, had to help me. Who is Michael, friends? An archangel. Any interpretation that makes the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia something other than an angel is a bit awkward, a bit inconsistent. It sounds as if in the heavenly realms, a man sought to contact God, and from the moment he sought to contact Him, God sent a response. But it was resisted. And resisted by who? Does the Scripture say devil? No. Does the Scripture say demons? No. It simply says one of the chief princes, a title that Michael himself holds. Apparently, there are even angels in the heavenly realms that have not done as God has asked. Generally, it was understood in the ancient times from verses just like these that that was the case. Look at Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority. Somebody say, keep their positions of authority. To keep something, you had to have it in the first place. And to the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change, for the judgment on the great day. There were angels that had a home and a position of authority in the heavens. And they abandoned them. Talk to me about once saved, always saved for a moment, and I will love to show you verses that say even the angels can fall away. Look at 1 Peter 3, 18-20. It's in the middle of your screen here. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In this verse, we get a time frame for angels that abandoned their position. It was during the days of Noah while an ark was being built. In the second letter that Peter wrote, you can see here in the fourth verse, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, who did He send to hell? Angels putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for what? Judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. We have the same time frame. We have three scriptures that refer to something happening in the ancient world. By the way, the book of Jude starts off with a phrase that says, though you already know these things, because it was common knowledge. It's not common knowledge today because we don't discuss it in church. We like a comic book style Bible. Something that simply has boiled everything down to the essentials, then trimmed away about half of those, and then boiled it again, and maybe left with some of the essential minerals that were left in the original. And that's about what we would like to call the gospel. I want you to understand there's more going on than just your life. There's more going on than just whether you sin or don't sin or whether you prayed a prayer or didn't pray a prayer or got baptized. There is warfare in the heavenlies. And this was understood in the ancient times. Greek historians like Hesiod said that the Greek pantheon of gods came into being. Do you know how he said they came into being? When the gods cohabitated with women. From a pagan standpoint, they said gods came to the earth and they created hybrids. You had, in the Greek pantheon, men like Hercules. It's like a cheap rip-off of Samson, isn't it? These were stories in which something of the heavens infected the human race and they thought they were great. Great. The Greeks thought they were wonderful. They created all kind of mythology around them. But the Greeks did not invent this. This comes from Genesis 6. Let us turn there. There. Say there. Just Dustin's there. You better get with me tonight or I'm not going to let you alone. I promise I can make it all the way to the back row. Speak to me tonight. Tell me when you're in Genesis 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Notice these two terms. One is son of God, the other is daughters of men. One is the offspring of something heavenly and the other is the offspring of something earthly. Were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now men, I hope you all chose to marry your wife. But ladies, I hope you as wives also chose to marry your husband. Right, We don't have Sharia law in here. None of you were drug into a place and fastened with a burqa at the age of eight and given to some pedophile prophet, I hope. Can you tell I have a low opinion of Islam? Could I say that loud enough? It's demonic, it's devilish, and it needs to be resisted, and the church should stand up against it because it's evil. It's evil, and if the church had a backbone, it would say so. You know what else was evil? When something in the heavenlies defected and began to do things in the human race that God said ought not be done. There was a promise given in Genesis 3.14. It was a promise not given to a woman. It's often misstated. It's it's often stated as if the promise in Genesis 3.14 were given to Eve. It's not. Listen to this. Genesis 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, who is he speaking to? The serpent, what has the serpent done? He's deceived the human race. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Say first the natural, then the spiritual. Now here comes the spiritual. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. First God addressed the snake and then he addressed the power behind the snake. There will be offspring that comes from the woman. And that offspring from the woman will crush the head. Not the head of a serpent, but the spiritual head of the serpent. This was a promise. Every promise of God is resisted by impure powers in the heavenlies. When you received a calling... When it was said that Charlie would be a patriarch among his people, that Joe would be a matriarch, that they would raise a family that was honorable in the sight of the Lord, that they would serve God all the days of their life and bring with them many sons and daughters. You know who else heard that? The powers in the heavenlies heard it. Some that were for Charlie and some that were against Charlie. And they began to manipulate and move and scheme and try to prevent What God said would happen. Because if God makes you a promise, Edgar, and it doesn't come to pass, then God's character suffers. So it's never really been about you. What's at stake is the very character of God. When God makes a promise, it has to come about. If it doesn't come about, then God's not righteous. And if He's not righteous, He can't make you righteous. You're beginning to wonder why if He promises that Israel will be a nation, the other nations try to stomp them out? Why, if He promises that salvation will be from the Jews, the whole world gathers together to wipe out the Jews from the planet? Which nation have the Jews not been thrown out of? Which otherwise civilized people have not been uncivilized in respect to the people of God's promise? It's because there's impure powers in the heavenlies. And they are working against the call of God in your life. Have you ever had one of those days where you're like, well, it makes sense on that day... I mean, just an extraordinary number of things happen to keep you from doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. I joke, I see a traffic light as an obstacle to God's path. Jennifer says, it's divine order coming to my day. I'm not speaking about the trivial, friends. I'm talking about those moments where something tried to take your life and God spared it. Oh my goodness, but for the grace of God. My son was in a car accident. And the car accident was so pathetically minor. So ridiculous that I just had to laugh. I ended up praying for the people and hugging on them. It really weirded them out because they were Hindu. <laughs> but I figure if your whole world is upset and you have to call police and State Farm and everything else for a scratch the size of a pea on a car, you can't just go buy touch up paint. You need prayer more than I do. So I decided to give rather than receive. This promise in Genesis three fourteen and fifteen. It was. It was met with resistance. The resistance comes in Genesis 6, only three chapters later. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. There is a teaching in seminaries. This this wasn't the position of first century Jews. It wasn't the position of the ancient rabbis as far back as Babylon. It wasn't the position of the Middle Ages church. It wasn't the position of the Reformed church. It didn't become the position of any seminary until about 200 years ago. They say that the sons of God are referring to Seth. If that's the case, there is never a time in which this Hebrew phrase ever, anywhere in the Bible, refers to the sons of Seth other than here. And that fails to explain why we speak of sons of God and daughters of men. This phrase is benai, benai ha Elohim. Sons of God. And universally, this this is translated as angels, any other place that it ever occurs. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, i.e. angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. There's no indication in the Scripture that this was a mutual act. And how many of you know that if the Bible says married, it's really pointing to something uh, more physical, than putting rings on each other's fingers. Something of the heavens heard a promise that offspring would come from a woman, a human being, and would deliver the world from the tyranny of darkness that had covered it. And it decided to intervene. It decided to corrupt the human race. Listen to what the Bible goes on to say about it. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to daughters of men and had children by them, they were heroes of old men of renown. They were heroes from a pagan standpoint. How many righteous people were there in the world at this time? Roughly eight. Eight. We have Noah, we have Ham, Shem, Japheth, we have their wives. If anybody is a hero during this time, friends, they're a hero for the wrong reason. They were, the Hebrew word here is gibber. They were mighty. The NIV translates this hero. Mighty doesn't mean hero. How many people do you know that are mighty, that are not a hero in God's eyes? How many people are viciously, savagely, bloodthirsty, waiting to kill the innocent, and they're mighty? But they're not a hero. They might be a hero in their own eyes. This is the sense in which these Nephilim were heroes. They were heroes to a lost and dying world that so filled God's heart with pain, he decided to wipe it out. By the way, those of you that are sitting there going, well, you know Nephilim might be something else, and you know I heard this theory about the line of Seth or something else. Do you know how the Septuagint translates the word Nephilim? Gigantes. Can anybody guess what that word means in English? Giant. When the Jewish people came together to put their translation in the known language of the world, their work, considered a pure work by all theologians, the word that they chose to translate Nephilim was gigantes, giants, mighty men. Look at what happens next. Are you all bored? I mean, because you get Sunday school lessons on this all of the time, right? Every preacher dares to talk about these things. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth, uh, had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. Did you know God has a heart? In the center of His being, He was filled with pain. Why? Because the redemptive promise for mankind was in jeopardy. Because even heavenly creatures had defected to foul things up on earth, so that the heirs of salvation might not become apparent. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Say, praise God for one man. You tell me one man can't make a difference in your workplace. Tell me one man can't make a difference in Washington, D.C. One man that found favor in God's eyes. Made a difference for everybody sitting in the room, friends. One man can make a difference. If Noah didn't teach us that, certainly Jesus did. Now why did he find favor? This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. In Hebrew, this is Zedekah. It speaks of a moral righteousness. It's where you get the word Zadok. And uh, righteousness. Acts of righteousness are tzatzik. What this means is that in Noah's character, he was an upright man. Noah was Zedekah man, blameless among his people. The word for blameless is tamim. You can look it up if you like. It's 85-49 in the Strongs, and what you'll find is more than 50% of its occurrences speak to the sacrificial purity of an animal. When you offered an animal, it couldn't have a blemish on it. It couldn't be a hybrid. It couldn't be of a kind that God said, you cannot sacrifice. And among all the peoples on the earth, Noah was not only morally upright, he was authentically a descendant of Adam, a human being that would fit the promise, somebody who could carry on the line of Messiah through which Jesus would later be born. Can you imagine how dark things would be if Noah had not kept his life pure, if Noah's daughter, or wife, daughter-in-laws had not kept themselves pure, the living God intervened on behalf of mankind. When heaven pushes, earth is supposed to push back. God will reach down His hand into the little images that look just like Him. And He will use weak things to shame strong things. It's like taking your little brother and saying, even with my little brother, I can whip you. Watch this. And you grab his foot and slap them across the face. Go, it feel good? Would you like another? All of the powers in the heavenlies that defected, that decided to do something other than what God's plan were, were defeated by a boat in eight people. Because God was with them. Just like that Pharaoh in Egypt In the slaughter of the innocents who tried to wipe out the deliverer Moses was defeated by what? A little Jewish girl who made a basket and put a baby in it. Just like Augustus in the Roman Empire who was the son of God on earth who was here to bring universal peace and dominion was defeated by what? A child in a basket or a stall born to a carpenter. The living God has always chosen the small things, the insignificant things, to overcome the strong and the mighty, because it speaks of His glory. By the time you get to Genesis 15, turn there with me. It's just a few pages to the right. Say there when you're there. You have a promise in Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When Israel left Egypt, where did it go? Towards the promised land. God had told Abraham that he would inherit the land from the great Euphrates River all the way. A giant royal land grant. And 400 years before he inherits it, 400 years before his people or even a nation, God says, know something for certain. I'm going to do this. You're going to have this brief little bump in Egypt for about four centuries and then I'm going to bring you out with great power, and you will walk in an inheritance that I will give you. But do you know who was listening? The heavens were also listening. Every time God moved, there was a subversive element in the heavens. There was something that was yet unidentified, unnamed, that was moving in opposition to God, almost as if they were simply jealous of His affection for you. So when they get to the promised land, we won't read these scriptures, but you can put them back on the screen. Numbers 13, 22 through 23. Deuteronomy 2: 9 through11. Deuteronomy 2: 20 through 21. Deuteronomy 3, 8 through 13. 1 Chronicles. Do you see this list? First Chronicles, 24 through 8. 2 Samuel 21, 16 through 22. Do you know what they all list? Race of giants. Men like the Raphaites. Do you know how do you say "giant" in Hebrew? Rapha. Raphaites were giants. Descendants of Anak, who were a tall and fierce people, almost as tall as the Raphaites, they said. Men like the Emites and the Zanzumites." Look it up. There were seven kinds of giants in the land that God said the people would get. Do you know why? Because when you have a calling, Michael Hutchinson, it's not just Michael who hears it. The heavens hear it, and they resist what God said is going to happen in his life. There is a subversive element. Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air. There is a subversive element that wars against you. We have made Christianity so Mickey Mouse, so impotent, so pathetic, that we simply have these neat little things for ourselves, like if God wants it, it's always done. Really? Show me that in the Bible. Because I can show you in 2 Kings 3, where a man named Elijah prophesies that there will be a victory. That they will overturn every stone. They will stop up every well and take every city. But the king that they're facing sacrifices his firstborn son on the city wall. And the fury against Israel was so great, they turned back. And they did not do what God said they would do. God's will is not always done in the interim. But it will be done in the end. The living God is the God who sees from the beginning to the end. He calls a thing before it's even happened. You know how He gets it done though? He raises up the people who will do what He says. And it doesn't matter how many angels resist, it doesn't matter that the gates of hell stand against you. He said, this is my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say it wouldn't try. Do you feel resisted? When we preach about victory, when we preach about no weapons formed against you will prosper, when we preach on these subjects, sometimes the devil rears up in the hope, that he can put you back in your place before you find out who you really are. I'm here to tell you that when we know our position in Christ, when we know the progress that we can make in the kingdom, and when we know where we're headed, there is nothing in the heavens that I fear. The Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God is the apex predator. If there were a great white shark swimming around in the clouds, it would be us. Provided, of course, you know what God requires of you. Provided you have confidence that you're walking in His will. Every time there was a promise, the presentation of an obstacle appeared. You see this in so many places in Scripture. Do you remember Balaam was hired to prophesy? Balak. Hired him. He said, You know what? Would you come prophesy against these people? They're scaring me. They're marching around and God seems to be with them and that that bothers me. So why don't you put a curse on them? You know, there's still lands all over the world where you pay to have curse put on people. No curse will fall on me. The scripture says it'll be like a butterfly and it can't find a place to land. An undeserving curse will not fall on a man of God, friends. Don't let anybody tell you you're cursed. And if they speak curse words at you, laugh. It bounces off like bullets off of that super guy with the S on his chest. These situations, Balaam prophesied. Could Balaam prophesy against the people of God? No. He could not speak on God's behalf and curse the people God had blessed. Do you think that there were heavenly powers trying to get him to? Of course. He didn't do it. You know what they did get him to do? They used Balaam's advice in Numbers 31 to seduce the Israelite men away from following God and cohabitating with Moabite women. Yet another way to pervert God's holy race. Later, God's people are disobedient and around 740-720 B.C., something happens. God sends Assyria to come judge His people. Do you know what the Assyrians did? They took the people of God and moved them out, the northern ten tribes, out of northern Israel. And they settled other people in the land so that the few remnants of Jews who were left would mix with other peoples. That's where you get the word Samaritan from. Another attempt to pervert God's holy people. The devil's always had one game plan, friends. He wants to make you as impure as he made his last home. You think that the point is that you sin in an instance? No, the point is that you fail to represent that God takes the weak and overcomes the mighty when we live lives that are slaves to sin. Here's a beautiful thing. You can read Exodus 3.14 and it will say, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, if I were going to give my name, I don't know if I could give it as something as simple as I am. But if you're God, how do you put into words something as beautiful as His character, His authority, His reputation? How do you explain to such a finite people such an infinite concept? So, he used the letter yod Hey, vav Hey. We pronounce this as Yahweh, and the Jews will not pronounce it. In your Bible, you see a capital L-O-R-D, all caps. We call it a tetratomagron. It is the unpronounceable name of God because we inherently know something is special about it, and a commandment, the third one, tells us do not misuse it. Yahweh can be translated in the following ways. I am that I am. That's how you usually hear it. I will be... What I will be. Another way that you often hear it is, I will be what I am. It sounds a little bit like he doesn't change like shifting shadows, like he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another way to translate it is, He who causes to exist. How about this one? He who is who exists. It's almost as if he is saying, Moses, you can't begin to understand. I am, I will be, I have always been. I am past, I am present, I am future, I am existence, it's very self. Friends, you ought to want to serve a God like that. He was there before your problem showed up, He's there when your problem showed up, and He's there after your problem's long gone. But now it's not just His turn to help us with a problem, it's our turn to rid the heavens of a problem, friends. Have you ever read in Corinthians that you would judge even the angels? You know why you judge the angels? You judge the angels because God is going to speak a message through you. But before we get to the message He speaks through you, how about this phrase from Revelation 1 8? You can turn there, you'll want to see it. Leave this on the screen for them and let them turn. Revelation 1 8, it's not a hard book to find. If you get to maps and concordances, you went too far. Let me tell you, the book is the revelation, it is not revelations. Please don't talk to me and say revelations. It is not multiple revelations. It is a singular revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation that God gave Jesus Christ and Jesus gave to His servant. It's not revelations. It is a singular revelation. And do you know how it begins? I am the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation eight, who is, who was, and who is to come. What is He saying? It's a lot like saying, yod He vav It's a lot like saying, I am who, that I am. I am He who is and will exist. He is simply saying, I am in the present, I was in the past, and I am the one that is to come. That is the revelation God gave Jesus. In other words, that Jesus is God. Now, there are benefits to this. Let's talk about He who is. Where is Jesus right now? Well, when He was talking to Pilate, you could see in Luke 22, verse 69, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying that I am. What an interesting way to say that. He could have just said yes. It's almost as if He's going out of His way to say you don't understand it because you're a pagan. But if you knew who I am was, and is, and will be, you're looking at Him. You're right in saying that I am. What is Jesus right now? He's the Son of God seated in the heavenlies above every authority, every principality, every title that can be given. Ephesians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.6 declare this. Jesus is at the right hand of the Majesty and everything is subject to Him. What was Jesus? 2 Corinthians 13.4 is on your screen. For to be sure, He was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by God's power. What was He? He was crucified. We are weak in Him, yet by God's power, we will live with Him to serve you. Just like He was crucified in weakness, and that's what He was... We crucify our flesh that we might live to serve. He was crucified, but he is not crucified now. Have y'all seen that art? It looks like a big fishing lure. It'd be a good spinner bait if you could put the right ends on it. They're in every hospital I've ever been in in Louisiana. It has a weak, emaciated Jesus with a six pack, he's got long hair. Lanky arms and a crown of thorns. And they say, this is Jesus. No, friends, that is not Jesus. That was Jesus. That is not Jesus today. He's no more crucified today than you are glorified today. He was crucified and today he sits on the throne of God. You want to envision him? Envision him ruling and reigning the mighty God above every other God. He is not now what he was then. He was then crucified so that he could be shown to be the king of the world now. So, what's wrong with referring to him in the past? Do you like it when I carry around your baby pictures and show everybody? That's what you were. It's not what you are now. Nick is a man. Look at this. Show show us your arms, Nick. Come on now. Don't be shy. God said, Have you an arm like God? He said that to Job. God is not scared to show who He is. It is not a fair representation of Nick and it's certainly not a fair representation of Jesus to simply talk about what He was. He was crucified. He is now the risen, glorified Master of all men. The same way Nick is not a baby anymore, he's now a man, a man of responsibility. First Corinthians 2 8 says it this way. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood what they were letting out of the box by killing the man in weakness and allowing him to be raised in power, they never would have done it. It was just one more plan that failed. If they understood what they were unleashing, they would have never uncorked that can. I don't know what y'all called it here. I know what my daddy called it, but that would be a Father's Day message. How about who is to come? Let us focus on better things. Curtis, you understood that, huh? See where you got some hot sauce Name that or something? Yeah. Friends, we haven't been born again all our lives, and we live in a world where people write things on bottles, and what's in it still tastes good. I'm sorry. Matthew 16, 27, who is to come? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. Oh, how many people want to be rewarded now! But it's just as wrong to say we are now what we will be as it is to look at Jesus and say he is what he was. The living God is reigning right now in the man Jesus. But there is a day coming when He will come with the angels, the mighty angels. And He is coming to reward those who were faithful to Him. That's not all He's coming to do. Look at Isaiah 62, 11. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. By the way, who's supposed to be carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth? How does the Lord make a proclamation to the ends of the earth? He uses you to do it. And if you don't go do it, then it doesn't get done, friends. We can't sit back asleep in the light and say, if God wants it done, it'll be done. He appointed you to do it. He's seated on the right hand of the throne. You know where He's not? He's not in Myanmar preaching the gospel. His work on this earth is done. He's in the heavens. Work that is left to be done, He gave to you, His body. And you're supposed to do it until you're edified and grow up to press into Him who is our head. Christ will be formed in you then. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes. What are we supposed to tell the world? The Savior is coming. See, the Savior comes. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. Friends, I want the reward. I would rather not have the recompense. The living God will return and it is not an award ceremony in the sky. You were lied to in Sunday school the same way you were told devil rules hell with a pitchfork and a goatee. You know, these things are simply false. They're written nowhere in the Bible. We boiled it down to three lines that we could teach a child who was five and decided not to teach them. We'll teach it to the adults. The reality is that from Genesis through Revelation, we have complex strategies, devil's schemes being played out to prevent you from being what God called you to be so that God could be shown a liar. And when we war, we are warring in the heavenly realms more than on the earth. The person standing in front of you is not the problem. The one pulling his strings is the problem. If we can learn to fight like Daniel did through persistent prayer, Oh, I think you heard a message here recently about Teshubah, repentance, and Teshua victory. How close they are. When you turn from your own direction and start moving in God's, the heavens answer you. I would like to point out that the two ruling Gentile kingdoms following Daniel, Persia and Greece, these are the princes that came against the one little messenger angel that came to bring something to Daniel. But when Michael turned his attention on them, he seemed to have beat them both. The Bible teaches that we on earth, one will chase a thousand and two ten thousand. Those heavenly warriors, read the book of Isaiah, one of them wipes out 185,000 men who align themselves against God under the reign of Sennacherib against Hezekiah. We have the power to command the heavenly realm. And yet, that's still not where our power is. Let us move to the next slide. Revelation 19, or 1.19. This is so good. Can you tell that I'm getting ready to teach the book of Revelation soon? Anybody want to hear the book of Revelation? Did you know that the book of Revelation has some 404 verses? You know why people don't understand those 404 verses? For every one verse in the book of Revelation, it refers to two verses in the Older Testament. You beginning to see where our problem is? You know, you can buy commentary after commentary after commentary or you could just read the 39 books of the Older Testament and it will begin to make sense to you. You get to where you have those memorized, the book of Revelation will be no problem. In fact, the blessings that are in it, that he who reads this will be blessed. Those blessings, they'll really be a blessing. It might even be useful if at some point, instead of thinking of escaping and cowardice, we actually thought of believing that book was for us and standing up and fighting. That would always help. If you believed you were actually going to be here, it would be pertinent to you. Revelation 119, Write therefore what you have seen. What you have seen. Write what was in the past. What is now, and what will take place later. Here we have the past, we have the present, and the future. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servant, is Revelation 1.1. And then what is that revelation going to include? Things that have happened, Things that are happening and things that will happen. We serve a God who is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning from the end. He knows what will happen with the promise He gives you before He gives it to you. When He said He was going to save mankind, He was serious about it. And the fact that Cain defected didn't mean that God didn't or wasn't able to carry it out. It just meant it wouldn't happen through Cain. When the Israelites get up, to the promised land, and they say, we're grasshoppers in in our eyes compared to them. Who were they looking at? Giant hybrids. God wanted men who would kill giants. He wanted men who said, you know, my God, He is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who's to come. And He knew what was here before I got here. He must simply want puny little David to kill that big nine-foot monster. What did David do when he killed him? He cut off his head and carried it back to the people of God to show them it could be done. Where is that spirit? You know, now we remove blood from our hymnals, we paint our church walls pink, and we got churches full of old ladies and dusty Bibles and steeples. And then we wonder what's wrong. Friends, I want you to understand something. I'm thankful for every old lady that prays in church. But God called a spirit of conquest in men who would lead their family, face giants, and said, even if the devil himself shows up, it's not a threat to me. What does James say about the devil? Resist him. Submit yourself then to God, resist him, and what will he do? Flee. 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 That's a funny little word, isn't it? My dachshund has fleas. Flee. It's a different flea, but perhaps we could think of it as a cognate. Look at Revelation 12.10. Are y'all still awake? I can't imagine that you've heard a thousand sermons on this in your life. I, I mean, I happen to know that it's, it's not in the Asbury Methodist uh, lectionary, you know. Um, I was in church my whole life. I never heard anybody dare to speak about it. And yet, it's every bit as scriptural as, say, the Trinity itself. Revelation twelve ten. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Now have come. Now have come the salvation and the power. Do you really believe that's a future event? Now have come salvation? When did salvation come, friends? When were you able to be bought by the blood of Jesus? Well, we'll let you figure it out. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. I assure you, Christ did not receive authority at some point in the future. When did He receive authority? At the cross. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. If you think that's a future event, you have to explain why the first chapter of Colossians in the 21st and 22nd verse says, He will present you free from accusation. We're not waiting for the devil to be cast down. When Jesus did His work at the cross, He divided even the heavens as well as mankind. There would no longer be heavenly defections because now the prince of this this world would stand condemned. From this point forward, there would be no more subterfuge. There would be no more espionage. There would be clearly marked people by the blood of the Lamb and those who did not have the blood, Ephesians 2 would be... Sons of disobedience. And the same delineation would occur in the heavens. And you know what? It made the devil angry. Said that he was furious because he knew his time was short. If we could simply draw a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the devil's time would be short. But as long as there's godless men among us who have changed the grace of God into a license for immorality, who can really know what is right? They overcame him by... The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What overcomes Him? The blood of the Lamb. The word of your testimony. Because you will give your life for it. How many men have you met in your life that you really believe would give their life for anything? You know, there was a great generation. They die at 600 a day now. They gave their life for freedom. And that's an admirable thing. But how much more willing should we be to have a D-Day, a stomp on the devil day, for the eternal glory of God? You talk about a day that'll live in infamy forever, it's not when one nation attacks another. It's when there's godless men allowed to stand in the church changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. When what angels could not do through corrupting the human race, they have done with their serpent tongues. Lying about the living God. Friends, now is the time. There's a testimony of salvation. When we are free from penalty, power, and presence of sin, it changes everything. There is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Ghost. Amen? There's a baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. An immersion into the reality of all that they are. And they are one. We have one salvation, and yet that salvation has at least three parts. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Say gift. Come on, say it again. Gift. You can't work for it, you can't buy it, you can't even plead for it. It is simply a gift. Grace is a gift. That's where most people stop with their understanding of salvation. This is when you become justified before God. Nothing in this world could justify you before God other than the gift of Of Jesus the Christ. 2 Corinthians says it this way in the 5th chapter and 17th verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, my family was very quick to point out when I got born again and said I was a new creation that I had many of the same exact attributes. To the extent that the God of this world blinded a few of them, they stand today and say I'm the same old Eric. Those that know me best don't believe that. How is it that the Word of God says you're a new creation? And yet, when you look in the mirror, it's not all new? Because you have been given a position in Christ, it's a gift, and it's just simply granted to you for loving Him. You could call it a heavenly position, a position of authority, something that you would never want to abandon for something lesser. It was a gift. Did we say gift? Somebody say gift again. It is a gift. And it is granted to you, and it is your high position of justification in Christ. If you don't get that word, it means that you're standing before the judge, and he took the penalty. It literally means you are free from the consequence of your sin. You deserve death, and what do you get instead? Life. That is not all of the salvation that there is. That is what was. You know what is right now? Because we serve the God who was, and is, and is to come. A three-part God with a three-part salvation for a three-part human being. You are right now the the God who is. You are in the process of sanctification. In the same way Romans 6.11 says... Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. I thought I was a new creation. I thought that I was simply saved by grace. The rest of the story is you now have a responsibility to a process of salvation. You were saved. And you are being saved right now as you get free from the power of sin. We can say that Moses showed up to deliver the Israelites, but until the last Israelite was out, they weren't fully delivered. Oh my goodness, dig a little deeper. Long after they left Egypt and were called sons of God, granted the position of son of God, they did not make it into the promised land. You know why? They dropped out of the process of being saved. You are granted a right standing with God. It is a gift and it's given to you but there is a process that you must finish. You are also being saved. Look at First Peter 1.9. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, The salvation of your souls. It is an ongoing receiving. You receive it every day as you trust Him. You receive it every day as you depend on Him. Every time you bring to Him some chain that is trying to attach itself to you and say, Father, you called me free and this is not freedom and I need your help. And He frees you there. You are being saved. To simply talk about salvation in the past tense is as wrong as still seeing Jesus hanging on that cross. He's not. He's ruling and reigning. He's in the process of putting all enemies underfoot. And you know who else is supposed to be in that process? You are. You know who's watching? The heavens. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Continue in what He gave you. You didn't earn it, but you have a responsibility to continue in it. And if you don't, God's work is not done. It's not. What happens, friends, if you have a high calling to go to China or Africa? What happens if you're supposed to be the man to carry the gospel to 200 villages in Peru? But instead you decide, I didn't get a vacation this year. I'd like to go on a vacation. What happens to those people? We say, oh, well, if God wants it done, it'll get done. What if everybody treats it as lightly as you do? Will it get done? See, He grants you salvation. But then you have to walk in that salvation. This has been left out of the gospel. It's an obedient-less gospel. Obedience not required. I promise we'll come back to the heavenly powers. There's a reason for this. The God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. He's the God of every part of your salvation. He's the author and He's the perfecter of it. There is a day when you will be physically glorified. Salvation is positional in the beginning. My position is I'm hidden in Christ. It is a process as you're walking through it. I am being saved. And in the end, it is actually physical. Romans 8.23 says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anybody in here's body been redeemed? You know... I closed a slide to uh, a forty-five on my finger, and we saw the bone. It doesn't feel redeemed. Pierced for my transgression, but not redeemed. It hurts. Sometimes I take ibuprofen, and I've seen a few of you do it too, because I'm not yet glorified. You talk to me about your secure position, you talk to me about how saved you are, and I'm going to talk to you about the three parts of the salvation that you and I are supposed to share. We have a responsibility to walk in it. Do you know why? Because the heavens are watching. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. There is a day when your flesh that is dying will be clothed with a flesh that could never die. Glorified. Totally saved. If in positional salvation, if in a justification, when you're given that gift, you're freed from the penalty of sin, then as you walk in that salvation, you're being freed from the power of sin. On the day you're glorified, you'll be freed from the presence of any sin. As holy as Jesus is holy. Having been given a gift and walked in it, you will have not be fighting the good fight of faith, you will have fought the good fight of faith. Until then, friends, we struggle. We struggle with powers in the heavens, we struggle even with our own flesh. Let's talk about what his intent is. His intent was that now, through the church, who's the church? Who's the church? Who's the church? The gates of hell is not supposed to prevail against you. This is my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are the church. His intent was that now through the church, that's you, the manifold or many-sided wisdom of God should be made known where? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He's trying to say, I am the God who is, the God who was, the God who is to come. And I can give them a gift and they will not leave it. They will walk in it, and they will arrive at the goodness I intended for them. He's talking to angels that defected from their positions, and it's the first group that Jesus preached to when He was crucified. Peter said it. The heavens gave up something that God said, I will give you, and I will raise you above them, and you will rule even them. And we are insolent enough to treat it as trite as I was saved when I was eight and that's all I had to do? Are you kidding me? The, power, the angels long to look into what we are receiving right now. We have the nerve to fight over Taco Bell versus Burger King when the angelic powers are listening intently. Because if you're praying in line with the will and word of God, they have to obey you an angel that can lay waste to 185,000 men simply by running through a camp has to obey Abigail Stevens. Do you see what God has invested in you? He's invested His reputation in you. He's chosen the stage of the human drama on this ball of dirt to teach everything in the heavens a lesson. Have you heard it said that we are living epistles? I bet you thought just other people were reading them. I bet you thought it was just your responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people around you. Do you know who else is watching what you're doing as you're sharing the gospel? The heavenly realms. And apparently they defected in the days of Noah. And God charged them with error. And He put them in dungeons. And apparently after the days of Noah, it happened again. But when Jesus came, He said, The prince of this world now stands condemned. And Revelation 12 sure seems to infer that the dragon and a third of the stars in the heaven were swept from the heavens. And from now on, it was open warfare in the streets. Do you know who the soldiers are? You. The gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against you. The blood of the Lamb clearly marks sons of God. And the testimony of what we were, what we are, and what we will be overcomes them. Oh, church, if we could simply find out who we are. You know, you wouldn't have to walk around covered in shame. The heavens long. They cannot have. As great as Michael the archangel is, he will never have what you are being freely given. Paul calls it the fulfillment of the ages has come upon us. Turn with me to Exodus 12.12. Do you remember before Jesus went to the cross? Before He went to the cross, He showed up on a mount of transfiguration. Does anybody remember that? Say yes if you do. He showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration and on the Mount of Transfiguration two men appeared with Him. Moses and Elijah. What were they discussing? His upcoming exodus. In God's eyes it was the same story that was repeating again and again. Jesus is going to bring about an exodus. And what was the point of the exodus? Oh, we say to birth a nation. We say it was uh, to cover them in the blood of the Lamb. We say it was to... Bring out a new nation into the land of Israel. All these things. What does Exodus twelve twelve say it is? On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. I am the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. And you watch this. I will exert my force over every heavenly power that did not stand with me and I'll use those weak little guys to do it. Now what was Jesus discussing before He went to the cross? His upcoming exodus. He's bringing judgment on the gods of this world and you are the instrument He uses to beat them. He actually is so bold as to say in Romans 16, 20 that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Not Jesus' feet, your feet. Turn with me then to our last scripture that I'll turn to. How about that? This will be, how about John 16, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and Judgment in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. You need to understand that you have been given something that the angels were jealous of. There's no possible way to explain the motive of satanic powers wanting to corrupt little old Adam. No possible way to explain that. Why would they even be interested? They were interested because they wanted what he had. And didn't Satan brag to Jesus? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world because they've been given to me. They wanted what you have been given. And man gave it up. And so God entered humanity to get it back. It is yours. It is mine, and He credits it with credits you with it. Long time before you ever have any idea what you have, and He says it's okay. Trust me, and you will grow in your salvation, and you'll mature in your salvation, and you'll press up into the head, which is Christ. And one day I will come back, and I will crown you with glory. He actually said to those who stood beside Him in His trials, they would sit on twelve thrones, because He would confer upon them a kingdom. Saints, this is what we're supposed to inherit. Let's stop thinking about salvation in terms of, I prayed a prayer, and I got dunked, or I got sprinkled, or I got waved at, or I got confirmed, or I ate a cracker, or whatever other religious thing it has been made. It's nothing less than you're an heir of everything that is God's, starting with this planet and the heavenly realms, and angels obey your voice. How important is it then that we walk rightly with Him? I've been preaching about the victory that is ours. I've been preaching about the futility of besieging the saints of God because heaven is with us. What you need to know is who you are. And when you figure out who you are, nobody will ever have to tell you how to act again. It is simply beneath us to dig in the dumpsters of the world. Amen? Do you all feel the high calling of Jesus Christ? Yes. I have a last thing to tell you. I told you I wouldn't turn anymore and quote, you know, among the last things Jesus says in His canon of Scripture, so I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I started redemption. I bought redemption. And I am the finisher of your redemption. It is a three-part process, friends. Don't shortchange Him. Don't say, oh, I have a high position in Christ. There's no need for me to put sin underfoot. That'd be like leaving Him on the cross. You're supposed to be learning to rule and reign with Him. Amen? Amen. Now, if we do reign with Him, if we've not been just freed from the power, or rather the penalty of sin, but we're also being freed from the power of sin, this means that anything that can cause, anything that sin causes, you have power over. What has sin caused? Well, the theological answer is death. That's why we can command people to come back to life. But much more than death, what did it cause long time before a human being ever died? A separation and a break in relationship with God and man. Maybe we could look at some of our relationships that are not working right and go, you know what? That's the result of sin. And I have power over sin. All I have to do is continue in Him. Maybe we could look at some of our sicknesses and say that's the result of sin. And I have power over sin. All I have to do is continue in Him. Maybe we could look at every foul attack of the enemy and say I have power over you. And the very last thing that you'll be free from is the presence of sin. And it will be as far away from you as it is Jesus if you continue in Him. Stand to your feet. Some of you leave and go, man, they were talking about giants in that church. Others go, I don't know, I think he was quoting Greek prophets. I- I don't know what it was about. The reason we showed you about the heaven is before we showed you about your salvation is so that you would understand what He's giving you in more than a comic book fashion. You ought to feel privileged. You ought to get down on your knees tonight and say, thank you, God, for what you gave me. Amen. Holy Spirit, give me the power to walk in it. And Jesus, finish what you started in me. Because I got the potential to forget about every good thing you ever did for me and I don't want to. It's not enough to start this race, friends. We have to finish it. Jesus Himself said the love of most would grow cold. That was the prophet, Jesus. The Son of God, Jesus. The Prince of Peace, the architect of truth, Jesus said that. Then He gave this warning. He who stands firm till the end will be saved so maybe you're a pre-trib guy and here tonight I love you even though you're wrong let's let's say stand firm to the end of your life whenever that may be it is not enough to believe when you're a kid and fall away when you're adult and inherit the kingdom after you're dead it will not work it's a lie and I'm glad you got your baptismal certificate it's worth worth what any paper is worth the pledge of a good conscience that you maintain from first to last is what matters obedience coming from your faith faith expressing itself through love these are the things that matter so you can go get your USDA certification as a Christian or you can make your calling and election secure by walking in his power Why don't you join the hands of the people that are around you?